So tonight and for the next three weeks, uh, what we're doing is we're looking at the next major part of Scripture in the Bible overview series we've been in. And the section that we're coming to now is the New Testament letters. Um, the Gospels tell you who Jesus is, uh, what Jesus did. You know, in the Gospels, uh, it's what Jesus did in his life on earth. You know, his miracles, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And then in the book of Acts, you see Jesus' ministry continued through his church. But then you come to the New Testament letters. You know, these are books like Romans, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Peter. The letters tell you, what does Jesus mean? How did Jesus, who he is and what he did, you know, what, what's the significance of that? How does that change you? How does Jesus and what he did change your actual life? I'm not, you know, there's a zillion and one different ways to answer that. Um, and... You know, it's because Jesus changes literally everything. You know, it's not just that he changes the religion category of your life, you know, or the spiritual category of your life. He changes everything. It's not just 10% of your life. It's 100%. Um, it's the, you know, it's the work category. It's the family category. It's the school category. It's the social category. If Jesus really is who he says he is, then there's no aspect of life that isn't affected by who he is. Uh, but for this week and for the next three weeks, what I, what I want to have us focus on it's just one of those aspects that Jesus changes, and that is your identity. Your identity. How do the events of the best story ever, the, the story of the Bible, and specifically the story of Jesus that we've been studying, how does that give you a whole new identity, a totally unique sense of self? That's what we're going to be looking at tonight and for the next three weeks. Um, or let me put this another way. You know, Christians, Christians are always talking about salvation, you know, Christians are always saying, Jesus saves, or, or are you saved? Maybe you've heard that before if you're here tonight. Uh, maybe even if you're not a Christian, you've heard that uh, tonight. And, and, you know, a very understandable response uh, to many people in our culture to that would be, huh? <laughs> you know, what does that even mean? You know, isn't salvation, you know, are you talking about just like going to heaven when you die? And what we're going to see um, tonight and over the next three weeks is that the Bible's understanding of salvation is infinitely fuller and richer than just going to heaven when you die. The Bible, and especially the letters of the New Testament, tell you that to be saved doesn't just change your future, it actually changes your present. And to be saved by Jesus is to receive a whole new identity, a whole new way of seeing yourself and seeing the world. So that's what we're looking at. The question now is, well, what, what is it? <laughs> you know, what is the identity that Jesus gives us? And we're going to look at that through looking at just one little part of, of the New Testament letters. It's from Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, to begin, I just want to have us um, read that. And, uh, you know, I just realized I didn't give myself a handout. So I actually don't have this in front of me. Can I just borrow someone's? Thank you, Rachel. Okay, so uh, flip over to, uh, it's actually page two. And I'm going to read for us. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, by the way, there's a lot of big theological words in that passage. One of the things that I'm going to encourage you to do in small groups tonight is to look up any of those words that you don't know to be sure that you do know what each of them is. We're not going to talk about every single one tonight. So what, what we've just read, this little paragraph, this is one of the most important paragraphs in the entire Bible. But it's also one of the densest paragraphs in the entire Bible, which is why my task for the next you know, 25 minutes or so is just to, to explain what, what is this, what's in here. And there's a key word that unlocks what this paragraph is all about. It can be found in verse 21, and it's the word righteousness. It's the word righteousness, and we'll define that in just a minute. But righteousness is the key that makes this whole passage make sense. And in this passage, what we're going to see are are three things. Number one, the need for righteousness. Number two, the search for righteousness. And number three, the gift of righteousness. So the need for righteousness, the search for righteousness, and the gift of righteousness. So this first thing, the need for righteousness. Let me, let me before even going there, we, we need to back up a little bit. Um, because for this to make any sense at all, you've got to have a little bit of an idea of, of the context. Um, you know, it's always important to read scripture in context. Uh, you know, one time I, I heard a story about a guy who was trying to decide, well, you know, what is God's will for my life? So he plays Bible roulette. He flips open the Bible. He just kind of puts his finger down on a random verse. He looks at the verse and it says, Judas went and hanged himself. And he realized, oh, I don't know if I like that very much. And so he closed the Bible, flipped it open again, didn't, you know, flipped open a random page, put his finger on a random verse, and the verse said, go thou and do likewise. He realized, oh my goodness, <laughs> I don't know what I think about this. So you, can, you always have to be so careful in taking the Bible out of context. And so we don't want to do that here. Um, here's a little bit of the context. So if you remember last week, you remember we learned about Paul. And Paul was a bad guy. You know, he's persecuting Christians. Uh, and then out of the blue, Jesus meets Paul on the Damascus Road, and the greatest persecutor of the early Christians becomes one. <laughs> and the rest of the book of Acts really is about the life of Paul. And in the rest of the book of Acts, you, you discover that after Paul's conversion, he becomes a missionary. He traveled around the Roman world, planting churches and writing letters to the churches to address problems they were experiencing. And Romans is one of those letters. So Romans is written by Paul to a group of Christians in Rome whom Paul had never met before, but he had plans to come and see them. So he wrote them, Romans, almost as like a a letter of introduction, like here's who I am, here's my theology, so you know what I preach, what I teach. And the context that he's writing into is that Romans is a divided, uh, the church of Rome is a divided church. You've got both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And the Jewish Christians are probably, if you kind of read between the lines, saying to the Gentile Christians, we're better than you. You know, we're God's chosen people. But then the Gentile Christians would hit right back and say, well, you may think you're God's chosen people, but hey, at least, you know, we didn't crucify our own Messiah. So so they're, they're going back and forth about which one of them is better. And so there's all of this disunity and disharmony and division in this church. And so Paul, you know, he's a good pastor, What he does is he uses theology, the truth of the gospel, to bring unity to a divided church. So what does he do? How does he do that? Well, if you look at chapter 1, just to kind of paraphrase here, what he says is, Hey, look, you Gentiles need the gospel. 
You know, the, the Gentiles were the irreligious people in the eyes of the Jews. You guys need the gospel. You guys are under sin and in need of a savior. And then in chapter 2, he turns his, his sights on the Jews. He says, the Jews, you guys need the gospel too. You guys are also under sin. And then in chapter 3, he concludes, everybody's under sin. You guys are all in the same boat. You're all in need of a savior. And you're all equally saved by that same savior. And his name is Jesus. And so in the rest of the letter, Paul explains what that gospel is, how it works, how it equally saves both Jew and Gentile. And in the opening chapters, uh, chapters 1 through 3, and throughout the book of Romans, the thing that Paul says both Jews and Gentiles need is righteousness. Both Jews and Gentiles need righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Um, you know, when you think of righteousness, you might think of someone who's very, very smug, maybe very self-righteous. You know, it's kind of a, a word we use. Uh, but the simplest definition of righteousness is that righteousness is right standing before God. Righteousness is right standing before God. You can kind of think of it as your status. Uh, so, for example, I'm sure no one in here has ever done this, but imagine that uh, you, know, you forget to turn in a library book. And so you go online and you look at your account status, and, and what do you see? You know, in big red letters it says, status overdue. <laughs> and you know, if you do that enough times, you know, not turning in your library books, then you might have your borrowing privileges taken away. Why? Well, it's because you're not in right standing with the library. Or let me give you another example. Now, you guys, I'm so sorry. This is a very, um, this is an adulting example. So I'm not trying to stress you out here, but just, you know, just bear with me. Uh, so let's say that you want to buy a house. Um, and so you go to the bank and you uh, try to apply for a mortgage. And one of the things the bank is going to do is decide whether to loan you money uh, by looking at your credit score. Now, uh, let's say that, you know, you've got a great credit score, you know, 750, maybe even like 825. That's a really good credit score. And then, you know, you're, in that case, you're, you're riding high. But let's say, let's say that your credit card has been just burning a hole in your wallet and, uh, and you're in debt, uh, you're, you're a delinquent on making your payments. Uh, and then in that case, you know, your credit score is going to be very bad and the bank isn't going to loan you any money. And again, why is the bank not going to loan you any money? It's because you don't have enough righteousness. Your status isn't enough. So it kind of make, makes sense, hopefully, so far. So, so Paul's summary statement of where kind of we stand with our righteousness before God is in Romans 3.23. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all means both Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter who you are, Jew, Gentile, young, old, rich, poor, you know, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. The whole human race is in bad standing with God because of our sin. We've rebelled against God. We've used God. We've tried to wrest control from God so that we can be God. And on top of that, we've broken God's laws. We have not loved other people as we should. We've used other people. We've lied to other people. We've judged other people. We've held grudges against other people. And in thought, word, and deed, the Bible says that we are unrighteous. And that as a result, apart from Christ, every single one of us, all the human race, if you were to go onto your spiritual account status, what you would see would be big red letters that say status, guilty. That's what righteousness refers to. It's your status before God. And what Paul is saying is that of ourselves, all of us lack it and all of us need it. 
Okay, now someone might say, you know, maybe someone reading this, well, you know, Paul, I don't even know that I believe in God. You know, I don't necessarily feel guilty. Why should I care about righteousness? And, and the reason that you should still care about righteousness, even in a secular culture like ours, uh, that maybe doesn't even believe in the, in, in the term, is that we still care enormously about righteousness. Even in a secular culture, we just don't know it. And that's because our secular culture uses a different word for righteousness, and it's the word enoughness. Enoughness. Now, you might be kind of raising your eyebrows because you might say, enoughness, that isn't even a word. What are you talking about, Michael? Well, <laughs> uh, just wait, just wait. Look at, look, at, look at these photos up on the screen. Raise your hand if you've ever seen a slogan kind of like this before. I don't know if you can read that. It says, you are enough. You've probably seen that slogan. Um, here it is on a t-shirt. Here it is on a mug. Um, I think we've got one here that's, uh, what's the next one? Yeah, this is uh, on a bracelet. Or uh, here's actually uh, the title of a book, You Are Enough. So this is everywhere. This is everywhere. Now, you might think, you know, this has nothing to do with what Paul's talking about, but oh, wait, it does. It does. Um, actually, oh, this is a good one. This one, so the top, it says, you're enough. You are so much more than enough. And it goes on. And the bottom, it says, you've always been and will always be enough. So just, you know, lots of different evidence of how this slogan, it's everywhere. Now, now, why? Why are we constantly having to remind ourselves that we're enough? I think it's apparently because we don't feel like we're enough. We don't feel like we're enough in and of ourselves. You may feel like you're not good enough, maybe not smart enough, not pretty enough, not attractive enough, not manly enough, um, one that I relate to, not decisive enough, not hardworking enough, not successful enough, not sexually pure enough, not Christian enough. Now, now, we don't usually think of that as guilt. You know, who's there to be guilty to? But in a sense, it's about our status. It's a sense that we're not what we should be and that there's something deep down that we know is wrong with us. And this is exactly what the Bible tells us we should predict. You know, our ultimate problem, according to Scripture, is not that we're alienated from ourselves. It's that we're alienated from God, that we're unrighteous before God. But the Bible teaches that if you're alienated from God, it's going to lead you to feel alienated from everything else, from others and from yourself. Our guiltiness before God, you know, spills over, you could say, into a gnawing anxiety that deep down we're inadequate. And we might try to medicate it through counseling, maybe through positive self-talk, but it never fully works. And it lingers as a signpost that is pointing us back to our estrangement from God, to our need for righteousness. And that actually takes us to the second point, which is the search for righteousness. So remember Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden, they're living in paradise. They're completely whole. They're in perfect relationship with God, with each other, and with themselves. And it says in there that they're naked and unashamed. You know, it's a, it's a picture of being completely at ease with themselves, of feeling no sense in any way of their own inadequacy, of their own, you know, no sense of guilt, no sense of shame. But then what happens? They eat the fruit, you know, they disobey God, and what is, the, what is one of the first things they feel? It's guilt. 
It's shame. They, it says they realized that they were naked. What the Bible's saying is that they, for the first time, felt like they were exposed. And so what do they do? Adam and Eve hide away. It says that they take fig leaves and they sow fig leaves in order to cover their naked selves. And what Paul says, and what tons and tons of the Bible says, is that we do the exact same thing. And in fact, when you read Romans 1 and 2, what you get is an enormous catalog of fig leaves. All the different ways that we all search for a righteousness of our own to cover up our sense of guilt and inadequacy. Now, you know, there's an infinite number of different fig leaves that, that you, could, you, could, you could look to. But for the most part, you can actually fit them, all the different fig leaves, into one of two strategies. Um, so let's, let's call one of them the, the quote-unquote pagan strategy, and then the other one the religion strategy. So the, the pagan strategy, the religion strategy. So the, the pagan strategy is in chapter 1. So remember, in chapter 1, Paul's talking primarily about Gentiles. You know, the, the, the Jews kind of thought of them as the pagan people. And uh, so, you know, the Gentiles, these are, these are the people who, who don't believe in the God of the Bible. Um, they're ignorant of God's word. They don't keep God's law. And today, you know, we might think of this group as, as maybe the, the non-believing group. Maybe people who would say that they're atheists or agnostics or, or maybe spiritual but not religious. That's a pretty big group of people, pretty big category. Well, what is, according to Paul, the fig leaves of this group? According to chapter 1, one of the things he names is worldly pleasure. So look at chapter 1, verse 23. He says, instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And in, in a passage like this, you know, an idol doesn't simply point to a statue that you bow down to worship. An idol is something, anything, that you turn to for happiness or significance, for a sense of enoughness other than God. Uh, so for example, um, there's a little excerpt I've got here from an article. Um, this is uh, an article written by an Irish guy named Patrick O'Moran, and he's reflecting on his life, and, and here's what he says. He says, a few years ago, I estimated with a mixture of pride and ruefulness, means regret, um, that I had worked every single day, Saturdays and Sundays included, for three months. And uh, he tells himself, if, I, uh, if I'm doing that much work, I must be a great guy, the real deal, a sort of Hercules figure. Uh, but then later in the article, he says that he realized something, uh, kind of in all of his reflections, and he says that the busyness had another purpose, namely, justifying my existence on the planet. So in other words, what he's admitting to is, what he's, what he's realizing is that his idol was work. He's basically saying, if I just work enough, then I can feel good about myself. Then I can feel like I'm enough. So that was one example of an idol. Let me give you some more. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read these, and, and perhaps some of these might kind of echo maybe your own inner monologue. I only have worth if I am loved and respected by other people. You might call that approval idolatry. Or, I only feel okay if I'm able to control this or that area of my life. It's control idolatry. I only feel like I'm enough if people are dependent on me and need me. That could be considered helping idolatry. 
I'm only acceptable if I'm satisfying all of my religion's requirements. Religion idolatry. I'm only happy if my family members are happy with me. Family idolatry. I only feel good about myself if I am hurting or suffering because only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. Suffering idolatry. I'm only good enough if I have a particular kind of look or body image. Image idolatry. Or uh, this is one that I bet as young adults a lot of us can relate to. The thing I most long for is having a significant other. Relationship idolatry. Or uh, here's one. I will finally be happy if I'm enjoying a high enough quality of life. Making enough money, having enough pleasures. That's comfort idolatry. Two more. The thing that gives me most pleasure is experiencing sexual pleasure. Sex idolatry. And then one last one. I can finally feel secure if my political party or candidate is in office. That's political idolatry. So do you see how anything, you know, anything, you know, even a good thing, if you are finding your sense of enoughness in it, can be turned into an idol? You may not, and some of these are sneaky. You might not even realize that you're doing it. And so the, the pagan strategy, the irreligious strategy, is to ignore God. And it's to find some sense of enoughness in something, that, in, in something that God has made rather than in God himself. That's strategy number one. But now, you know, what about, what about if you're a Christian? You know, what if you're a religious person? You know, what if you know, kind of just in your head at least, that, you know, all these worldly things are not ultimately going to satisfy you? Well, if you're a Christian, I, I, I hate to admit it to you, but the problem may actually be even worse. Because there's a second strategy that Paul alludes to, and it's the strategy that religious people use. In chapter 2, Paul turns his sights on the Jews. You know, the Jews were the religious people of Paul's day. These were the people who did believe in the God of the Bible, and they, they did know God's word, and they, they, they did seek to obey God's law. But if you look at chapter 2, uh, the last two verses, verses 28 and 29, here's, here's what Paul says. Uh, he says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, uh, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So just to paraphrase, what he's saying here is that the religious people of his day, and I think you know, this can be true of people who are religious in our day as well, is that you know, they're not necessarily looking to kind of these worldly idols, but instead they're looking for their sense of enoughness in their religious performance. You know, they thought that if they just got circumcised, if they studied the Bible, if they went to synagogue every Saturday, then they would feel like they were enough. Now, um, a story I like to tell to kind of illustrate how this can work um, in our lives is a story about how this has happened in my life. So um, this was a time a number of years ago when I was actually um, visiting some, some friends of mine who used to go to Thrive, and at the time they were at a Bible college, a Christian university down in Oregon. Uh, they were at Multnomah University. Any, uh, any Multnomah people in the room? Okay, yeah, great school. Anyway, they were down there, and um, one of my friends uh, just happens to, be, he, when I was down there, he was uh, one of the, the finalists in a, it was like a Bible trivia scholarship competition through the university where if you won this Bible trivia competition, you, you got an extra scholarship. 
And so I just thought it would be neat to kind of go and support my friend. And so um, I'm, I'm at this quiz, and, and they're asking, you know, these five contestants all of these Bible trivia questions. And if the, the five contestants didn't know the answer, then the judges would ask the audience if the audience knew the answer to the questions. And so there were a number of times when the contestants didn't know the answer, and so they went to the audience, and so I would raise my hand and say, well, you know, the answer is blah, blah, blah. And this happened a number of times, and so at the end of the, the, the competition, uh, you know, there I was, I was not a student at the university, they didn't know who I was, but a bunch of the students came up to me and they said, wow, you know, you, how did you know all these answers? You know, you, you knew a lot of these trivia questions, even more than all these, all these, you know, scholarship people. And, you know, of course, like a good Christian, I just kind of smiled and I just, you know, said, oh, you know, thank you. I, um, I, I probably don't really know as much about the Bible as you might think. I just might have, must have gotten lucky with what the questions were. So, you know, on the outside, I, I was pretending to be very humble. But on the inside, I was smug. I was thinking, yep, <laughs> that is absolutely right. I do know more about the Bible than you. In fact, you know, you guys are Bible students. I mean, you should know the Bible. You know, no wonder the American church is in such shambles because you Bible students don't know your own stuff. You know, if only you were more like me. <laughs> now, now, please don't imitate me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, putting this out there as an example to follow. But what I'm trying to show you, <laughs> through my very embarrassing story, is that you can be a Christian. You can believe in God. You can try to, you know, to follow all the rules. And you can use your very religious performance as a way to run away from God rather than to love God. The pagan strategy is to ignore God, but the religious strategy is to use God. It's to come to God not to worship him, but to worship yourself so that you can say, look at all these things that I've done for you, God. You know, now I can feel good about myself. But all of these things, even the religious things, you know what they are? They're fig leaves. They're fig leaves. They might be pagan fig leaves. They might be religious fig leaves. They're all fig leaves. And they're attempts to cover, to hide, and to heal your gaping sense of inadequacy. And the problem is that fig leaves always fail. They always fail. You know, if you seek your worth in what someone else thinks of you, you know, while they like you, you'll feel like a million bucks. But what happens if they become disillusioned with you? You know, what happens if they reject you? Or if they drop you, it makes you fall apart. Or if you seek your life in controlling all of the details of your life, you know, that's great until life does what life does, which is happen. <laughs> you know, like, eventually you are going to lose control of your life. And so if your life is found in controlling your life, you lose control of your life, you lose your life. Or, you know, if you feel like you're only enough when you're crushing it at Christianity... You know, what happens when something happens? You know, you betray your convictions or you relapse on an addiction or you experience doubt for the first time in your life. You know, suddenly, if all of your identity is in crushing it at being a Christian, you're going to feel like you've lost God's love because your sense of love wasn't based on his love. It was based on your performance. All of these righteousness strategies fail. You know, you succeeded them for a little while and they're going to puff you up with pride but fail at them, and they're going to break your heart, and it's going to lead to a vicious cycle 
Um, if any was, I don't think anyone, maybe a few of you might have been at the fall retreat. I think this was 2018. We had a speaker who put up a diagram like this, and I just want to show it to you really quick. Um, there's a, a diagram here. It's a little circle of what happens when you're trying to search for righteousness in something other than God. So you're looking for something to justify yourself, something to make you feel like you're enough. Well, eventually, whatever that idol is, is going to lead to disillusionment and disappointment. And that disillusionment and disappointment leads to demonization. You know, it's going to maybe lead you to demonize that idol. Maybe if your idol was like a significant other and they let you down, you might take out all of your, your sorrow and grief on that other person. You're going to demonize them and ruin the relationship even more. Or maybe you're demonizing yourself. Maybe you're demonizing even God. And the result is guilt, which is then just going to lead to looking to one more thing to solve that sense of guilt. And it's a vicious cycle that's like a noose that tightens and tightens and tightens. So we're desperate. We're desperate for a different kind of righteousness. When we seek our own righteousness, it leads to death and we never feel like enough. And that's our, that takes us to our final point, which is the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. So what we need, what we need to deal with our unrighteousness, our sense of not enoughness, our, you know, our guilt before a holy God, what is that? What is it that we really need? Um, if you're into books, I know that there are some people here who are into books. Um, chances are you, you know the name Charles Dickens. You know, Charles Dickens, he was one of the most famous authors of the 19th century. I mean, one of Dickens' most famous books is A Tale of Two Cities. Um, it's a long, you know, it's an intricate book. Uh, essentially, though, it revolves around uh, two men, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton. Charles Darnay, Sidney Carton. And these are two men who lived during the time of the French Revolution, and they also happened to be uncanny lookalikes of each other. And to make a long story short, uh, Charles Darnay, is, he's caught up in the fervor of the French Revolution. He's imprisoned, imprisoned by the revolutionaries, and he's sentenced to death. Uh, but Sidney Carton, at the end of the book, he decides to trade places with Charles Darnay. He puts on Charles Darnay's clothes. He takes Charles Darnay's place in prison. And at the, the conclusion of the book, Sidney Carson is executed in Charles Darnay's place so that Charles Darnay can go free. Charles Darnay had the status of a prisoner. Sidney Carton had the status of a free man. And in an incredible act of love and mercy, Carton traded his status so that Darnay's life would be spared. And that's what we need. We need a change of status. We need our record to be cleansed. We need our sins to be forgiven. We need our unrighteousness to be wiped out so that we can go free. And according to Romans 3, that's exactly what God did. I'm going to read you these verses one more time. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God, not our own righteousness, the righteousness of God, has been manifested apart from the law. Apart, you know, in other words, apart from all the things that we might try to do in our own strength. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so do you see what this means? What this is saying is that God's righteousness, his status, I mean, just think about God's status. I mean, he's God. You can't get a much higher, better status than that. God's status has been given to us as a free gift, even though we all have sinned. You know, that's amazing. I mean, just to, to, to imagine what that's like. Imagine, like, right up here next to me, there's an invisible blackboard. And on the blackboard is everything you have ever done that's wrong or evil or shameful that you don't want anyone else to know about. For God to give us his righteousness means that that entire blackboard gets erased. Your record is clean, your sins are forgiven, in God's eyes it's as though you never did any of those things. Your status with him is clean. Can you, I mean, can you imagine what kind of freedom that would bring? But, but, okay, this is crazy. It's even more amazing than that. Because it's not just that our record's been washed away, it's that God's record is now written on our blackboard instead. So look at verse 24. Paul uses the word justified. I mean, you can't see it here in English, but in the Greek, the word for justified is from the same root word as the word for righteousness. The word justify is a word that means to declare righteous. So when, God, when Paul says that God has justified us by his grace as a gift, what that's telling us is that God has given us his righteous record. When God looks at your status, he doesn't see big red letters that say guilty. He sees perfectly righteous, perfectly pure, completely and utterly spotless. The gospel is the great exchange. I mean, don't you see that the gospel says that Jesus got all of our sin, Jesus got all of our unrighteousness. He paid our debt on the cross. Jesus took the punishment for our sin that we deserve. And in exchange, we got all his righteousness, all his merits, all his glory. And as it says in one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So do you see, that's why to be justified, to be declared righteous in Christ, that's what that means. It means that in Jesus, God has given us his righteousness as a gift. As a gift. Uh, now, just as we close here, um, I mean, don't, did you see, if you, if you really grasp this, and if you really kind of take this into the very foundation of your life, don't, don't you see the kind of utterly radical new identity that that would give you? So think about this. All of the strategies for seeking righteousness say righteousness is something you have to achieve through what you do. So remember, you know, the guy from the, the article, the, 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 the worker guy. He's trying to achieve his righteousness through working. Or remember the religious Jews that Paul's writing to. They were trying to achieve their righteousness through religious good works. But don't you see that if, if, if you're trying to achieve your righteousness, you're never going to feel secure in your relationship with God. You're never going to know if you've done enough to earn God's love. Your relationship with God is going to fill you with anxiety and fear. Every time you obey God, 
You're only going to do that begrudgingly because you feel like you have to earn his acceptance. God is only someone you fear. He's not someone you love. Or in your view of yourself, your identity is always going to feel unstable because your view of yourself is based on just how well you're doing at any particular moment. When you feel like a failure, your sense of self is going to be utterly crushed. But here's what salvation means. Salvation means that God has declared us righteous in Jesus. That means that righteousness isn't something you achieve because of what you do. It's something you receive because of what God has already done for you. That means that your relationship with God is full of warmth, full of security. You can have a deep sense of assurance that God really, truly loves you because you know that his acceptance of you isn't based on your performance. It's based on his performance. And your view of yourself will be stable too because when you fail, you might be humbled, but you're not going to be crushed because you know that since you didn't earn God's love, you can't lose God's love. You know that the only one whose opinion really counts has looked on you even all your sin, and said, I love you, and I want you. What would your life be like if you had an identity like that? <laughs> You'd be indestructible. You know, fear couldn't touch you. You'd feel utterly secure in the love of God. That's what salvation means. That's what Jesus has done for you. And just one more thing. You know, if you're here tonight, and you've, you've never received Jesus as Savior and Lord, if you've never accepted the gift of God's righteousness, then don't miss that this passage tells you how you can do that. In verse 25, it says that we receive God's righteous, righteousness, his gift, by faith. And that just means, you know, not like blind faith. It just means simply confessing that we need a Savior and trusting Jesus to be that Savior for us. And so if you have never done that, why not do it tonight? Why not say, you know, God, I am so exhausted of trying to achieve my own righteousness. I received the righteousness that your son achieved for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have already won the victory, that we don't have to fight for a victory. We can fight from a victory because you have declared us righteous in your son, Jesus. Lord, would you help us get in touch with that? Would you give us a salvation identity that knows what it is to be secure in the love of God because of what Jesus has done for us? And it's in his name we pray, amen.